which is according to the various astrological charts that I was consulting this morning, they told me that 21 minutes to four was the most auspicious time to say, hello, Rebecca Davis. Hello, John. That is ineluctably the case, I think. (laughs) What a word. What a word. Isn't it a splendid word? Isn't it an absolutely splendid word? This is because we are still in the final throes of the electoral process, and then we have the two-week throes, which is all they're allowed, of forming coalitions before they have to have a council meeting. And it is and has been and will be for a while extraordinary. Yes, it's a strange election, John. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, there's many aspects contributing to that peculiarity. The fact that it was organized in so much haste amid pandemic restrictions. The fact that it was marked by the lowest voter turnout in post-apartheid South African history, which is a really grim statistic, I think. And the fact that it delivered the highest number of hung municipal councils ever. And then, of course, that perhaps the headline stat, the first democratic election in which the ANC support fell below 50%, which some will celebrate and others will mourn. But in other ways, too, John, for me, it is especially hard to analyze. One of the reasons, for instance, is that some analysts have said that clearly this was a referendum on service delivery, that that was made clear, first of all, by the number of people who stayed away, and secondly, in the results they returned, in the shunning of the ANC for instance, and the shunning of the DA in many municipalities in the Western Cape. I think this is not true, and I think we can see that in a number of places. For instance, Cape Agullis. Cape Agullis, the municipality in the Western Cape, was recently ranked by News24 in its out-of-order index to be the best-run municipality in the country. Now, if this truly was a referendum on service delivery, you would expect to see it firmly delivered back to the DA. But instead, the DA has lost its majority in Cape Agullis. In addition to at least five other municipalities in the Western Cape in which the DA has lost its outright majority. And the DA is going to spin. In fact, they already have spun to me its performance in these elections. But the reality is that the DA has been hammered in the Western Cape outside of the city of Cape Town, that it has... As I said, it's lost its majority in Beaufort West and Oatsu and Cape Agullis, Saldana Bay, Brieville, Langeberg, and it's dropped seats all over the, the place too. And I think that that alone speaks to the fact that there's more going on here than service delivery, that there's also, it's a poll on identity. And we see that as well from the rise of parties like the Cape Colored Congress and the Patriotic Alliance. I mean, an astonishing result from the Patriotic Alliance, winning over, what is it, 62 seats nationally. You know, they're going to put the mayor in Beaufort West and they're going to be kingmakers in a whole bunch of places in Kuruleni as well. And that is a party which has campaigned overwhelmingly and very overtly on coloured identity, which has said no more will the coloured person be downgraded in this country. It wants coloured people very specifically to hold political power. And that is a message that has very clearly resonated with a lot of voters across the country. There's also the fact that the ANC has been returned to power in such an overwhelming mandate in the Eastern Cape, when we know that the Eastern Cape is just 
derelict, basically. It's absolutely falling apart. And yet there is something about the traditional links to that province, you know, the number of ANC presidents it has produced, perhaps, that prevents those voters from choosing other than the ANC. Again, it's not a referendum on service delivery. It cannot possibly be. The IFPs return to power north of the Tugela River. Also fascinating, John. What does that tell us? It tells us that many things, one of which is that, you know, the Shembe Church turned its back on the ANC, that there was a leadership transition which actually went rather well in the IFP, but also that the IFP was able to campaign on the July unrest, which I think has been more of an issue in these elections than we realize, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal. The IFP was out there saying it was the party which restored calm to the water, that sent Goodwill Duelatini out to say to urge calm after the looting, whereas we saw the NC president, Cyril Ramaphosa, terming it an ethnically mobilized unrest. IFP has reaped the rewards of that, John. 16 councils controlling nine, a further nine. It's going to take 527 seats. You know, many people think of the IFP as this kind of archaic, tribalistic party. We see that that's not the case. It's actually a vibrant political formation. And then, of course, the, the rise of independence, which hasn't been quite as, I think, you know, stratospheric as Muslim Maimane would have us believe, but is still definitely a, a thing. These little service delivery platforms, particularly the likes of Siederberg Erste there in Siederberg, which have really managed to persuade local constituencies that they are the platforms in which to put your trust rather than political parties. Are they going to have any great longevity? We don't know. Quite yeah, um, uh, and uh, when it comes to individual independence, there are 51 uh, independents who've won seats in the other eight provinces, but no, in, no completely independent candidate. So not somebody standing for one of the smaller parties, but somebody standing as a non-party affiliated independent. Uh, no, no seats as yet in the province. And it's interesting, too, that so Musi Maiman is one South Africa movement, put funding and resources and training behind a number of individuals and a number of these um platforms, I'll call them rather than political parties. But actually the end results of that do not seem to have been terribly successful. I mean, they are now claiming the success of all independents, but the reality is I think that they, in terms of their candidates, their platforms, they've returned about five or six seats, which is really very low if you compare it to the results of even other small parties, etc. But there's no doubt that these independent platforms are a real force within our political environment at the moment. And finally, John, I just wanted to talk a bit about voter turnout because, you know, I think that there's a sense now that we've swung the other way, that people now think it's, it's disrespectful to say that, you know, people were lazy or uninformed or, you know, that it was some, somehow wrong of them not to vote. And I think we've, we've swung too far in that direction now. Um, there's a reason why low voter turnout is considered problematic, and that's because politics in general benefits those with resources. It benefits those with money and those with education. I mean, we can see even from a political party like the EFF, which ostensibly uh, represents the poor, their top leadership all have multiple degrees. And that's the reality of politics globally. So the whole point is that in order to compensate for that vast imbalance, the vote is one of the only instruments there, there, there is. That everyone, no matter your age, your 
sex, your money in your bank account, everyone can vote. But the problem is that when voter turnout drops, it is almost invariably the poorer and the less educated who do not vote. And that means that the results are skewed. They are skewed in favor of those who already dominate the political system, who are richer and better resourced. So I think that we need to make it clear that voting is important, not just because it's some vague sense of duty. It's because otherwise we do not get a fair reflection of the political system. And that is really problematic for the whole health of our democracy going forward. And you want to weigh in on the racism row, racism row, I beg your pardon, in British cricket. I do in a in strange way. So I haven't really been following this, but, you know, Yorkshire cricket has been running this investigation into racism after Azim Rafiq says that he was subjected to racist vitriol repeatedly and his teammate, his former teammate, Gary Balance, has admitted that he was one of these people. But in a report commissioned by the club, it clears Balance, balance of wrongdoing, saying it was part of Benta, but it hones in on Rafiq and says that he deserves censure for using the term Zimbo in reference to Balance's heritage. It's suggesting that Zimbo is a racial slur. Now, John, is that your impression of that word? (laughs) No, old roadie is more, more cutting and more meant to position somebody in in a stereotypical category. But Zimbo for me is just somebody who's from Zimbabwe. In my in my in my view, it's exactly the same category as to call someone a Kiwi or an Aussie or a Safa. These are terms mainly used by expatriates, particularly in the UK. But I'm not convinced there is any derogatory meaning attached to it. Perhaps people are confused because it reminds them of bimbo or a himbo, which is also an offensive term. But it's the liberties people take with sub-Saharan slang there in the foreign world. It reminds me of when Elon Musk in his court case for defamation claimed that everyone in South Africa referred to each other as pedo guy as a form of endearment, which we, we don't, John. And neither do we use Zimbo, as far as I'm concerned, as an insult. Perhaps we should write to Yorkshire Cricket and inform them accordingly. Can they read? Good Sorry. question. Sorry, they are from Yorkshire, you know. And then the Brussels sprout, the humble and much maligned Brussels sprout. Are uh, you a fan? No, I eat it if it's on my plate, and I prefer it roasted. Um, I did. I mentioned to Pippa that I was going to be talking to you about the humble Brussels sprout, and somebody said this: Brussels sprouts. Where, where is it? There we go. Brussels sprouts dipped in chocolate and drizzled with more chocolate presented in paper cone wraps are a hit at Halloween trick or treat. That is a, a hate crime, John. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, whoever sent that in should be prosecuted, pursued by the hawks to the ends of the earth. My goodness, can you imagine the horror on the kids' faces? I mean, I see the hilarity, I do. That strikes me as unfair. I think a roasted Brussels sprout with bacon, however, bacon bits can be quite luscious for those of us who do eat pork. Anyway, be that as it may, and a new survey in England reveals that almost three quarters of Gen Zs hate Brussels sprouts. They are turning their backs on it. They don't even want it at Christmas, which is the traditional time for eating Brussels sprouts, or as we call them in my family, fart cabbages. I'm no fan of them either, John. 
But even more disturbingly, the same poll found that youngsters 18 to 24 are turning their back on the whole concept of Christmas dinner or Christmas lunch. Instead, they prefer, gasp, a brunch. They would prefer a Christmas brunch, presumably because of its Instagrammable qualities. John, is this yet another (laughs) sign of the end of days? (laughs) Is brunch more Instagrammable than lunch or dinner? I am not being an Instagrammer. I have no idea to the answer to my own question. I think, yes, very clearly. The light is better. One would have things like bellinis, which are very lovely to photograph with, again, the light radiating off the glass. Little, you know, a lighter food spread on a wooden table. I mean, I can see it all, John. You simply lack (laughs) the vision. And there is no Brussels sprout anywhere to be seen in that vision. Not a one. Not a one. What is your favorite Christmas meal, if you have a favorite Christmas meal? I mean, what what time of the day and what kind of cuisine? My family traditionally has eaten Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve because my mother is Swedish. And I'm quite a fan of that because it frees up Christmas Day for, you know, going to the beach and, you know, those kind of nice Christmas activities. But Don, I should also mention that Gen Z hates, absolutely hates my favorite Christmas food, which is a fruitcake. I adore a fruitcake. I know this is highly, highly controversial. Most people I know also hate it. They hate the idea of warm fruit and raisins and the rest of it. To me, it is the yummiest of all cakes. I push, I push the fruitcake aside and concentrate on the custard. That's what I do. Best laid on. Rebecca Davis will be back with another Plan B, and I'll consult the Oracle as to what time to introduce her next week.